We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MBW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome into another edition of Hand Raised Guys, presented by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. I'm Neil McCready. Uh, kind of a recorded version again uh, today, this Thursday, as Thursday evening, as we bring you an edition of Hand Raised Guys. It'll be the Friday Oxford Exxon podcast. Today on the show, Chase Parham sits down with Brian Rippey. They talk about Brian's story about the joiners, Randall Joyner, his wife, Tamisha. Uh, they're incredible uh story from the fall the uh during the football season as she kind of you know kind of to it she fought for her life um a great story she was able to um recover and um it's a story about their relationship and that path and brian did a fantastic job on it you'll enjoy it uh if you've not read it at rebelgrove.com but you'll enjoy listening to brian talk about it with chase then they dive into some old miss baseball old miss baseball this weekend against virginia commonwealth uh, three games, 4 o'clock on Friday, and then noon on Saturday, noon on Sunday. So uh, you get that. And then Ryan Brown of the next round and I visited for almost an hour this afternoon as well, Thursday afternoon. We talked about SEC basketball. Ole Miss plays Texas A&M Saturday, 2.30 um, in Oxford. We talked about uh, Auburn basketball, Alabama basketball, the league. We talked a lot of SEC football. We talked about the future of the college football playoff, the future possibility with expansion, Arch Manning, a number of things with uh, Ryan Brown of the next round out of Birmingham. We'll get to all that in a minute. First, I want to tell you that we're brought to you by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. It's different names, but it's the same great products, same great services. Uh, all you do is if you live in the Oxford area, the Tupelo area, parts in between, get in touch with the people at Comer, 662-801-1777. If uh, you live in Hernando, DeSoto County, Memphis, that area, get in touch with the people at Southern, 662-429-4429. Again, same great products, same services, same people, just different names. Make sure that you tell them how much you appreciate them being a part of our show. Um, I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900 is that number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. He will send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. Right to the bottom line, no hassle, no haggle. You get your quote, and the rest is completely up to you. You can shop that quote around. You can do what I've done, what I recommend that you do, and that's hop into a Clark Ford today. Again, 
257-1900. You'll love the service. You'll love the product. Um, Corey wants to be a car guy. He wants to be a truck guy. He'll prove to you what that means when you make the call. 662-257-1900. Brian Rippey, um, Brian Brown, other guests to join us on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline, Rafters Music and Food on the Square in Oxford. If you're coming up this weekend for baseball and or basketball, stop by uh, Rafters and um, have a burger, have a po' boy. Make sure that you um, enjoy a nice beer. They've got a, a full selection there. They've got great appetizers, full bar, all of that at Rafters on the Square in Oxford. And don't forget, if you're in New Albany, check out Rafters in New Albany as well. So uh, without further ado, here is Chase Parham and Brian Rippey from earlier in the day. Chase Parham, Brian Rippey here for uh, this edition of the uh, the show. Brian, we, we're taping this on Wednesday night, getting ready for, uh, I, I guess, technically Ole Miss and Auburn will be on the screen in front of us while we're talking for at least a few minutes uh, of this. But this morning, we published your story on uh, Teresa Joyner, Randall Joyner's wife, who suffered a brain aneurysm back in September. Got a lot of good responses, message board talking good about it. And I, I talked to Neil about this on, on Wednesday as well that and, and I know it's something that interests you. I know you kind of look for these things. Anything to show that coaches, players are not robots, that they're humans, that there are things going on outside of the game. Because I do feel like it's it, 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 trying not to duplicate our entire conversation from Wednesday morning, but and I, I do it with the Saints a little bit too. I have to be careful. We consider athletes and coaches a little bit like a one-way thing where they're entertaining us they're doing everything for us they're doing this they're kind of like at our disposal a little bit versus the other side of it where you know it's the jobs and the stress and the families and all the different things I, I feel like those kind of stories that, that that you wrote on Wednesday it's frankly one of our strengths from a site because we all do it pretty well um but just anything to kind of humanize to show the entire thing it it enriches sort of everything to me. It enriches the fan base. It enriches just sort of the experience with the with the team. And frankly, it's probably a pretty good reminder for media as well. Yeah, I think you're exactly right in that sense. It's it's fascinating because like it, I literally came across it just because uh, some sort of Twitter post from her, I think, but I didn't really know who she was. Quickly pieced it together. I think Randall had retweeted it. But it was after the football season, but then I kind of got down a social media rabbit hole and it was clear they were dealing with this throughout pretty much all of the football mm-hmm. season. And you know, I was I didn't know a ton about brain aneurysms, but I was like, man, that that's really serious to deal with something like that with the time consuming nature of these jobs. And then I kind of saw that she she was at a game. I've kind of pieced together. I was like, well, September 27th, October 20 something LSU game how does this add up? I almost thought it was like that didn't seem possible. And so I just started digging mm-hmm. into it more, but yeah, I think you nailed it with that where it's this one way entertainment, but these people have lives and they deal with the very same things that we deal with, but they just have very much more public time consuming jobs. And I can't imagine how difficult it must've been to sleep in a hospital chair or something like that, drive down to Memphis, go through or drive down from Memphis, go to practice like staying focused throughout a day, right? Because like you, when you're watching film and you're preparing a game plan and all of that, you have to be pretty locked in. I imagine that's not something you can half-ass from like a mental focus standpoint and then go back up and do it all over again. I've found that part of it fascinating. And then I listened to part of you guys' podcast this morning um, as I was driving home on my lunch break. And you mentioned something else that was uh, that was interesting regarding like the tight-knit community of these football coach family 
families. And that's something that Matt Luke talked about a lot. And, you know, given the way Matt Luke came into his job, it wasn't necessarily mm. always well received, seemed like coach speak cliches or whatever, but it really is true. There was parts that I didn't even include in the story where, you know, Alexis Love picked her up and took her to the hospital, Wilson Love's wife. And then um, GJ Durkin's wife, Sarah, got them hotel rooms, also got the family hotel rooms, got them food. But when she got back home, the football staff chipped in and had someone clean their house and bring them food every single day for, I think, the better part of a month. And so that aspect of it, too, I think is interesting just from a standpoint of you know, these people are sort of hired guns, right? You piece these staffs together with very sometimes they don't know each other hardly mm-hmm. at all. And you become pretty close in a quick amount of time. It, from what I gathered, Alexis Love and uh, Tramisha Joyner were pretty close friends and the same went for you know uh, Sarah Durkin. And it's just fascinating how close you get in that short amount of time. Well, yeah, well, you're, you're in that and Tramisha suffers this aneurysm. She's working out one minute, next minute on the floor, having a hard time with light, with sounds or anything. And when you're in that type of distress, obviously your your family doesn't live in Oxford. So I get your I get your choices are limited on who you're contacting. But instead of immediately, you know, 911 or anything else, you think to call Alexis Love. I mean, that, that is interesting from that standpoint, is that's where your brain goes at that instance. Cause yeah, like you said, we always talk about the the husbands or the coaches being the mercenaries, but they're bringing kids with them, they're bringing wives with them, they're bringing family units, they're bringing all these different things. And it's a little bit of a shared fraternity. I think they have to they have to be tight knit in some ways because they're the only people that understand exactly what they're dealing with every day. And you know the the wins and the losses. I mean, they're the only ones that understand what exactly it feels like. Of hey, if we don't win this game next week, we're probably all fired and going somewhere else. We're doing those different things. But like you said, it's not just that. It's also the the situation where they're just around each other so much, given the you know the constraints of what this job is. It's 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 fairly fascinating from that standpoint. It is. you. That last part's really fascinating to me, and it's something from talking to a couple of coaches, spouses or brothers or sons or whatever through the years for various things. You know, you see like the player's family section or the coach's family section. You think, oh, like they got good seats. It's cool. Like this must be a cool experience. And no, they're into that as much mm-hmm. as the coaches and like I wouldn't say more, but per- from a passion standpoint as much because, I mean, look, I imagine that your family's hoping that, uh, you know, Rebel Grove and Rivals <laughs> – <laughs> continues to do well and sell some subs to merch. But like, yeah. what if you had 12 days for a fall that determined mm-hmm. whether you could keep doing your job? And they know that. They know the stakes, right? They I mean, it's. I mean, literally, if it was like, hey, look, Mike Bianco's fired in June. And if you don't break the coaching power, yes. you're fired. You're done. Like, you got oh, four chances at it, five yeah, chances yeah. at it. And if you don't hit it or you don't hit it 10 out of 12 times, like you're done. And so, you know, it comes at a real cost. And I think there's real anxiety with that too but it also brings out passion and I think that's part of the story that was fascinating to me is the way the lens through she had to watch the games um because you know she's down on the field normally going nuts but uh, she says through those noise canceling headphones and the earphones that she sat outside for the A&M game and it literally sounded like tv background noise like she was reading people's lips and facial expressions and how I was at that A&M game I didn't need to read anyone's lips or facial expressions like that shit was pretty loud and so just the way different lens through which she had to like view the games and, you know, tying in the family aspect of, again, Kiffin just letting her sit in the box, Keith Carter letting her sit in the box for the egg bowl. Um, I can't imagine doing what she's dealing with going and sitting amongst all of those cowbells. That's a, that's a real trooper. You know, you, you talked to her, she's been very active on social media. You, you mentioned several times to me and then through the course of the, the article about, 
trying to live in the moment, trying to be more positive, take advantage of opportunities now that she was that close to, frankly, death, if we're being honest. What do you, what, what, what struck you about her attitude, personality? I mean, you talked to her for a really long time I and mean, it was over an hour, right? And as you did that, what, what, what do you feel like her message is now? I mean, what, how do you feel like maybe she has um, tried to see life at this point once this is all, at least at this point of being over? The positivity in her mindset towards approaching it, I think was something that was really one inspiring in some ways and two something that stood out and was almost jarring because I mean, she made it back to a football game 26 days after she went into the surgery, which is kind of unheard of because the way, and I talked to a couple of, I would say medical people in the medical field. Um, I didn't actually get a hold of a neurosurgeon, but, and then between that and some amateur YouTubing, I figured out that like from a brain injury standpoint, there's such a wide net of what could happen to you after. And some of that's based on the surgery, whether you have to go in through the skull or the groin, but a lot of it is in those first seven days afterwards. I know I mentioned the vasospasms or whatever in the story, but it's a lot of other things as well. And so you could be perfectly fine, but I read a couple of statistics that said over half the people that go through it have some sort of long-term complication that compromises quality of life. And so there's such a wide range of things that could happen to you. I was very impressed by her mindset and kind of wanting to tackle it and not being deterred by a lot of the things that come with it because she, you know, it's the, the headaches, particularly in the week after and they still come, I can't imagine getting a headache and then I'm just done for the day. Like she has to work out at eight o'clock in the morning so she can get it in in case a headache comes on. Cause she's not getting anything else in. Um, it would be pretty jarring to me to spend a month reading a book. And then all of a sudden something's changed up there and then you read it, like you continue reading it and you can't retain the information. Like she mentioned, she didn't forget how to read, but just imagine reading two chapters of a book and then like, I, I don't remember anything that just happened and going in and out of that. But none of that seemed to deter her. I mean, hell, they went skiing three weeks ago in Lake Tahoe. She'd never been skiing in her life and she did that. And so, you know, having to deal with all that and the headaches and like, you know, I don't even memory loss. It's really just information retention and then, I mean, going back, I, I've heard spinal taps are pretty unpleasant. She sat outside for one football game, had to go to the hospital for two days and get two of those. Just everything you have to deal with and all of the setbacks to, to continue to have the attitude she has about things and just be determined that it's not going to affect anything, I found pretty uh, pretty impressive. It would be really easy to feel very sorry for yourself, to be it annoyed has, with why me, like, well, you know, what, what is going on? I mean, she, you know, a, a young athletic female who is in seemingly good health up until the moment that, that happens. I mean, for her and Randall to take it in stride to the level of you, you, that you did, because I mean, you, you, you wrote it really well. I mean, once she gets to the hospital and she basically is seeing Randall sob, worried that he's losing his wife in that instance. And, you know, it's somebody she's known, I mean, since God knows what, I mean, she's, you know, we used a picture where, they were together in his signing day at SMU coming out of high school. I mean, it's been, it's been this long road, this long bond between the two of them. And they're really, it seemed like it was always what next or positivity or how do we get through this? It didn't seem like they ever kind of let themselves go into that dark place that, I mean, frankly, me or you or anybody else, it would be very easy to get there. I tried to, I wouldn't say I tried to like pull that out of them, but I was pretty thorough in asking like, you know, did you ever get to the point where I'm like, you know, I'm, I might not make it or whatever. And they're like, no, like, of course, like it's kind of subconsciously in the back of your mind. And that's kind of what causing a lot of the fear and the emotions, but we never actually like spoke about it or talked about it or even thought about it. And even in, you know, I was most shocked that 
they get in there, the Memphis, they can't find an anesthesiologist. So they're just waiting for three hours. And the way like brain aneurysms work, you can't like, it's hard to find like symptoms or like signs of it until it ruptures. But when that ruptures, it's bleeding in your brain. And at any point that could just kind of be it. I read from a couple of different people or in a couple of different places and talked to some people to where I think most people can kind of make it between 12 and 24 hours, but mm. that seems like a pretty serious deal. And they just had to wait because of COVID and other things to find an anesthesiologist and wait four hours when at any second it could be over with. And yeah, they really went with like a go getter attack it mindset. And that's another thing that was inspiring about it. And then just the sheer fact that, I mean, you have other parts of, or other medical emergencies and like you're either sedated or you go unconscious or whatever. I talked to someone that had a friend that had a brain aneurysm and that person went into a coma and they kind of woke back up, but they're severely debilitated. Their quality of life is completely Mm -hmm. different, but she was awake the entire time. Like I can't imagine she couldn't see light, but like the entire time, other than a little bit of morphine that she got at Oxford to kind of numb the pain a little bit. Like I can't imagine getting into a helicopter for the first time in my life on a gurney, you know, blindfolded, not really knowing if I'm going to make it to see the plane land and just fully awake and cognizant. Like she wasn't really loopy. There was nothing. You just having to live through all of that essentially blindfolded. It's obviously not the point of the story. And I mean, Randall was a secondary figure in the story. However, I'll, I'll be honest. He was the guy that since Ole Miss hired him and you, you learn about him. He's one of the top assistants in the country at what he does and his position. Um, really energetic, really fiery. He's a damn good recruiter. He can move around. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, was coaching defensive line, but then he can shift to linebackers if needed, if, if, if Ole Miss finds a defensive line coach or, you know, whatever. He's He can do a lot of different things. He's done a lot of different things. He played linebacker when he was at SMU. He's he's beloved in Highland Park. He, one, of, one of their kind of favorite former players from that era. And as I read that, it's support system, the way he handled this. He's a dude that Ole Miss probably needs to enjoy because it feels like he's on the way up. It, it Just everything about him screams coordinator very soon, whether it's here or somewhere somewhere else, and, and, and eventually even progressing. I mean, he, he's progressed through pretty quickly, and it's it, it's pretty real. As I read that, I said, yeah, okay, you handle all that stuff. You stay with your job, and then you have that type of family environment with you as well. I mean, because – I mean, if people hadn't done this, they should do this. We embedded that Instagram video um, above the second, the first subhead. So in the second part of the story, and it's a scroll thing. So scroll over, and one of them is a video of him, I guess during the LSU game, um, waving at her, kind of blowing her a kiss. And it was powerful. I mean, it was kind of a goosebump thing where she gets there and just the elation on his face that she's – looking at him that she's relatively okay given given that standpoint. It was, you know, beyond all the words, you know, from a picture, from a video standpoint, it just it just said a lot kind of about him, about them, but about kind of the the road they're on too. I can't imagine he slept a ton in those days between that and in that kind of moment, you couldn't tell. It's right. Like, you know, there's smiles and then there's one that kind of stops you in your tracks. And that's one of those mm-hmm. moments you if you really look closely at his face, it it says a lot. And I think that was a pretty powerful moment for both of them because you talk about living in the moment and like not to get like too Zen on it, but I was like looking up something. I stumbled on an opinion piece from a psychiatrist in the New York times where it's like humans are actually wired to keep thinking toward the future and live toward the future. Like they, in some ways they physically can't, but to hear them talk about that moment, like you would have thought it lasted you know, 30, 30 minutes instead of 45 seconds or whatever it was. And like, I just imagine given everything they went through, 
it was probably pretty easy to relish that for a minute because, you know, from all, by all accounts, that was a, kind of a picturesque day. I read Neil's column actually from that time, from that win. And you know, I think he called it like a postcard day or something like that. You know, if you were advertising Oxford, Mississippi, there was nothing more perfect about that. Yeah, it's where the phrase Chamber of Commerce Day comes from. That's like, what that's, he called it. Yeah, not yeah, Chamber that's of it. Commerce Day. It's exactly what it was. Yeah. And so I imagine it was pretty easy to kind of soak that in and probably – I didn't actually specifically ask him about this, but she'd been at all these games. She misses the two games despite pretty much, uh, you know, going to every link to convince people to let her go to Tennessee. And they're like, no, like you're two weeks removed to come back after two games. I imagine he had a sense of calmness that he didn't have a lot, but getting back to like his, his professional, uh, his professional ascent. One of the things that after talking to him, he's one of the people that like, you hang up the phone. I was like, damn, this guy, like saying well-spoken is almost like an understatement and almost like undermining in some sense. Someone that when you talk, like it's captivating to listen to, I think would be a better way to put it. And I went down a rabbit hole because for whatever reason, I remembered a clip from Sam Williams earlier this fall. You guys had him in like a Tuesday or Wednesday media availability. And it was right when he was starting to kind of figure it out. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how Randall Joyner changed everything for him, how he watches film, different moves, I remember Very, this, yeah. And it just really gushed over him, and it wasn't just, yeah, he's my coach, I'll go to battle for him any day, that kind of kind of canned crap. It was like, <laughs> this guy has changed my entire mindset on football and the way I approach things and has made me such more complete pass rusher. I went back and watched that, and if you find well, that – For Sam video, Williams, that changed his life. Yes, it did. It just, it just not a guy that will give you a lot. I talked to Sam Williams like 45 minutes one day for a different story, and like he's not – He's not short on purpose, but that's not a guy that would like gush over anything. And that was, I, there was no hiding it in that. And then the second video I found was just something he happened to have posted on his Twitter, uh, that being uh, Randall, where he's like given this motivational speech that's like somewhat serious, but they're also like, it's not before a game. It's at a practice at Ohio State in 2017 to where I think he's a GA and Urban Meyer is standing in the background and he just has the room so captivated that Urban's like not saying anything. He's just like nodding his head and going along with it. And I was like, damn, this guy's like 25 years old at the time. And has Urban Meyer just kind of caught up in the moment based on these, what he's saying and kind of getting one of those get better each day speeches after a tough practice, I'm sure. But like that stuck out to me as well. I was like, you know, when this guy opens his mouth, the room listens. When you went into this, and I don't want to get overly like journalism nerd, but I mean, it's kind of fascinating. I think people like inside baseball to an extent. When you went into it, you obviously knew the story you were trying to tell, but were you surprised at some of the depth? I mean, did you – at what point did you kind of know what you had on your hands? Uh, when about 40 – or about 30 minutes, maybe 20 minutes or so into talking to her, uh, Trimesha, that is. I So, like, we, we, talk, we talked about this earlier. Like, we try to go after some of these human interest stories and not to go, like you mentioned, too journalistic nerd, but, like, the – tough background kid that makes it out or whatever. Some of these stories become cliches. I didn't make them any less special. And not that I thought that that was going to be something like this, but I was like, okay, she had like a medical emergency. I guess I never really thought about the depth, like that everything that goes into this, but you know, sometimes the interviewer interviewees make the story. I would actually say pretty often uh, Mm -hmm. they make the story. And I started talking to her and I was just like, take me step by step through that day. And she was so incredibly like thorough with it and picking up on every detail. That's about 25 minutes in. I was like, okay, they, they really, really went through a lot here. And, you know, when going in, I'd done some research on brain aneurysms and I was like, I wonder if this thing ruptured. And she mentioned 
you know, having like a fourth of a CAT scan before the first doctor walked out and was like, no, we got to do something right now. Like we'll finish the test, but like, this is bad. And so I think about 20 minutes in is when I probably realized like, man, this is, there's a lot of twists and turns and there's a lot of parallels with this. That's uh pretty insane because I mean, I'm still pretty young, right? Like I, I haven't had like something like tumultuous, like this happened to me before. I know like, like I've had somewhat people close to me, but I feel like until you experience it or happen to someone close to you, you don't realize like the, the details and the twists and turns that kind of goes through that comprise people's trials and tribulations. If that makes sense, you kind of just gloss over the details. Well, it's like, it's why one of the things that stuck out to me and I, and I know this so well from basically, I mean, from my entire 2015 with my child or my dad or the whole deal is that Randall, he talked about, were you scared or whatever? And you wrote this, it's not a throwaway line, but I think a lot of people kind of would skim over is he talked about numbness that it's your, your brain at some point kind of protects itself. When you're waiting on a result, there's nothing you can do. You can panic, you can panic, you can panic. But at some point you do, you go numb. You just kind of stop because time kind of stands still. You almost feel like you're in a car crash a little bit. And I thought that was one of the lines that was simple, was something that was just sort of in there, but that that registers with a lot of people who have been in those type of situations and been dealing with, I mean, frankly, loss. I mean, you know, after a death, people go into a numb stage a lot of times for, you know, the the, the loved ones that are still alive. It, it's all those different things. I thought that really stuck out to me as he had that moment where you have the crazy amount of emotion, you go numb, she ends up getting out of surgery alive, obviously, then it's immediately into that recovery mode. And now, okay, what do we need to do next, 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 next? And that, that's a coach mentality. It's a football mentality. It's a lot of those different kind of things. But that was that was fairly um, – that was captivating for, to, to me, something that you wouldn't really think about. And I would – I've kind of challenged myself on this. I mean, we talked about I, – I read the thing on Mark Robinson kind of at the end of the season for football, looking into a couple of different baseball things. Do you feel like you're – and it's kind of where your mind goes anyway, but – do you feel like you're a little better conditioned or more out to notice these things because you aren't doing it 24 hours a day and you're not caught up in the minutia of just the games and the players and the notebooks and all, you know, the, the, you obviously things that go with a beat, but less significant stories where you get to focus on a little more big picture. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's definitely true. I always tried to make it a point to do that. Um, you know, when I was working full time, but you only have so much time on your hands and that's, <laughs> that's probably where some of my shortcomings as an actual like beat reporter were is because I didn't really have a ton of interest in a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff. Honestly, I like the human interest stuff more. And I know that's probably a common sentiment to some degree with a lot of writers and reporters, but yeah, I think now that, you know, I'm selling grease by day and just having like a big picture view by night, I don't have to worry about getting a notebook up or going to a press conference or something. I can kind of take a, a step back and, um, kind of just look for other things on the peripheral. But to be honest, we talked about this before and not to get like into Ole Miss media relations because this is across the board with college athletics. It's a lot of times you get better stories from people that are on the peripheral because college athletics are so guarded with the people that are in it in terms of access and what you can and can't do from an interview standpoint. You honestly get better stories on the peripheral and like looking for things like that to where you don't necessarily have to go through media relations like Ole Miss media relations is not like you know I, I would say any more tightly wound or any than any mm -hmm. other SEC media relations it's just kind of the nature of the industry and so I think that's part of it but I think a lot of it is yeah just not having to do it full time and 
um, you know, go to press conferences and like you said, get caught up in the minutiae. I can kind of just sit back and look for some bigger picture stuff and really enjoy it more because there's no like deadline per se. You know what I mean? You can kind of take your time on it. Like I think we pushed it another day or two just so I could kind of see if I could talk to a doctor and I kind of got what I was looking for, but not really. And so that part of it has been nice as well. We'll get yelled at if we don't at least talk about this. I know you'll have your your podcast with Colin Brewster coming up here from a baseball standpoint. But just from your interpretation, I mean, I would Neil and I have talked about this a little bit. I did some of it in my kind of the three outs video with, on, on Sunday when the series was over. Is there much we can take from that at all? I mean, at this point, they're four and zero. They haven't played a full game since Friday. They've played four games and only one has actually gone nine innings. They had a seven inning game, an eight inning game, and then now a five inning game after the Tuesday or the Wednesday win against Arkansas State. The opponents have either been bad or played poorly to an extent that, I mean, you have to give Ole Miss a lot of credit in a couple different areas, but for the most part, I don't know that we know much of anything because I'm not sure it was physically possible for those for them to lose any of those four baseball games. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's some small things. Like, I don't know if like they, you can like take anything drastic away from it, but there's, I'd say some seeds are being planted storyline wise, even early on in the year. You mentioned only one of them has gone nine innings. Well, you know, part of that is because they've destroyed inferior pitching. And look, they've done that the last couple of years, but I think this offense is sort of on a different level than any of the ones I'm thinking 2018 on, right? They've been pretty potent offensively since Kessinger and Zabowski mm-hmm. and all those dudes sophomore year in 18. And I think this one goes to like even the different level. And look, we'll see once we get into SEC play, but most of these dudes outside of Reagan Burford are pretty much known commodities. I mean, I guess Kemp Alderman, you want to see if he can catch up to velocity and if that plays. But like the hardest hit ball of the season so far was that double that he had that got four feet off the ground but somehow got to the mm-hmm. wall. Well, that was off Caleb Hill, who was sitting 91-92. That's not the hardest velocity anyone's going to see all year, but it's certainly a decent sign. And I guess that's a long winded way of saying the dude that they're trying to figure out to get at bats for and how to get him in the lineup last year hit like three thirty with nine home runs in his opportunities. And that's Hayden Leatherwood. Like there's no, and this may arise. They may have an injury, but in Burford or someone else may not work out, but there's no, how do we fill this one last spot and make do with Kale Baker or uh, Trey LaFleur? There's none of that. Like, do you feel like, there's there's really not a break and we said that going into last year and then some guys fell off but this year i really feel like there's no break in this lineup it's 10 deep for sure it's 10 for sure did you see the graham home run the the pitcher after the after graham hit it like put his head up in the air and looked like he'd rather be anywhere else than a baseball (laughs) diamond i thought that was sort of telling in a way well in a way like why get so worked up about it you're gonna lose the game whatever just like turn it and enjoy it what's the thing like it's it, it, it's all good it, it, it's fine yeah i mean kevin graham had seven rbis in a five inning game today he did he had seven he had, he had seven rbis in a five inning game it was it was the damnedest thing um they're 10 deep because you talk about the however let's say the base eight starters and then Leatherwood and Burford, depending on how you want to factor that in for to, to get to 10. And I guess technically it might even be 11 because you got Van Cleve too who's going to play. Um, so we have to factor that in right now no matter what. What do you feel like Mike's – and I know we don't have answers here because we're not in his head by any stretch of the imagination. But with Leatherwood, he comes in today, he gets the home run, plays pretty well over the course of the weekend – what do you feel like Mike's lack of trust with him is, or what is the role that he is attempting to get him to play? I have no idea. 
I, because I, the stats didn't back up the thing last year. He talked about the ref, the the left right thing, or you know, not being able to hit left handers. He actually hit left handers better last year from a split standpoint. And it probably would have almost served his point a little better to let him hit if he actually believed that. Like he, if he gave him enough opportunities against left handers, the numbers may have proved him right. I don't think it would have, but it would have been. It wouldn't have been so ass backwards in the sense that you just said he hit left handers better than right. I, I don't know. I don't under, fully understand that one because on top of that. He was always the Plumlee defensive replacement, and I kind of get that, right? You got to lead late in the game, get the fast kid out there, um, you know, better defensively. But like he was always the first one pulled off the field. Like if they had to reshuffle, even with like the infield, he was the one off. I uh, I really don't understand it. Um, if he, I mean, what he's played, he's had two starts and two home runs. Like if, eventually, Mike's just gonna have to give him like the Tyler Keon treatment. Like if the kid continues to hit, you have to play him. So like. I don't know. Like, I, I really don't know. What do you, do you have a theory on it? It doesn't make any sense to me. He was inconsistent at times last year. And now look, they've all been at times, but I feel like in some ways, Mike was trying to run out the microwave when he was hot and, and get all he could out of it during that period of time. But he, it seemed like, and again, they see tons more than we do. So I'm not even necessarily criticizing this. I don't know an answer. But what's interesting to me is it's almost like they don't trust him to kind of snap out of that, if that makes sense. Almost like, no, he's this guy who gets really hot and he goes on a run and he kind of cools off and he that, that's who he is. But with sample sizes being so small in college baseball, it's hard to know that. I mean, in 2020, he got hot pretty much there right before the season got shut down from, from COVID. Last year, sure, he had some different slumps and different things, but it's – it's not an exact science, but it's interesting to me which players Mike thinks are going to bounce out of it and should be everyday players and it's all good. And then which ones are kind of no, just the role guys, or you want to ride them while they're hot or whatever that looks like when we don't really get enough from that standpoint, we don't see enough. We, 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 we over the course of their careers are essentially one major league season. So from a, from a stat standpoint, it's really more about eye. It's more about feel. And I think that probably separates coaches good, bad, and different because you're never going to get enough numbers to fully justify a justify a decision. You have to just believe what you're looking at and go from there. And I think in some ways that's hampered Leatherwood because I think it's kind of what Mike thinks. And, look, maybe he's right. I have no freaking idea. But he has really produced when he's gotten chances, uh, at least over the last half of last season and then part of this season as well as like their four games in. And he actually only has one start. You mentioned, you know, today he was a pinch hitter. He came in from Alder for Alderman. So three games played, one start so far for for Leatherwood. And some of this is positional, but like I have to look at it from this standpoint. Who deserved the benefit of the doubt more last year? Ben Van Cleve and Kel Baker or Hayden Leatherwood? And I get it. Like you, you're not going to roll. Like some of it is just you got to have a DH. You got to have a um, a first baseman in that sense. And like you couldn't stick either one of them in the outfield, I guess. But like to me. Ben Van Cleve's next college home run will be his first one. Like in Kale mm-hmm. Baker, after a while, that just kind of was what it was, man. You just lived with it. You lived with the OKD. OK He's off to a horrendous start, by the way, in Ohio this season. You see, he sent me this numbers there, Dave. It's not great. It didn't look like he had seen it. He ton was over eleven with five Ks. That tells me he did not see a ton of upper eighties fastballs, and so you just kind of lived with it at that point. And so I just didn't understand it from that point. It worse came to worse last year, and. I'd have to go back and actually like look at a lineup card to remember exactly the minutia of it because I'm sure there's a reason. But Hayden Leatherwood couldn't throw in a first baseman's mitt. Just just DH. He he has his offensive upside from a standpoint of his running ability versus I mean Van Cleve bunts better than Leatherwood, 
but otherwise, Leatherwood has a lot more upside in all ways. I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it, it seems like just from the standpoint of average power, his ability to move, um, all those different things, or, or, or and really not even necessarily picking on Van Cleve. I mean, frankly, it's 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 there's multiple guys you could at least make the argument for that Leatherwood should be in the in the conversation. You know, you want to give. I do think giving Alderman a lot of at bats right now is huge because he has just so much damn raw power that if you can harness that and make him really get some at bats and, and and become a hitter more than a swinger, which which he's doing, it's looked better already. But I mean, there's stuff from Alderman you just can't freaking teach. I mean, he has that 114 exit speed on Sunday to that ball hit, um, and he didn't even necessarily use his legs. It was kind of an all arm 114 exit velocity. So it, that, that's where Mike's in a little bit of a bind right now. Is I, I, as much as Leatherwood probably needs some at-bats, I, I, I'm, if I'm him, I am stockpiling Kemp Alderman at-bats right now. I'm giving him as many looks as I can possibly give him against rights, against lefts, against fast guys, against curveball guys. I mean, you're, you're trying to create as much sample size as possible for Kemp because he has the best upside to potentially really catapult the bottom of that order. I think they believe he has the most raw power they've ever had, which is saying a ton. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right. Colin and I talked about a little this a little bit last week. That's one of those deals, particularly with the way the SEC season like shakes out. Don't you just give him up, unless it's just horrendous, which I don't think it'll be, and it certainly hasn't been so far. Don't you just give him until three weekends into SEC play? You got to give him seven weeks or six weeks, whatever, and just see what it is. It's a little bit similar to the Tim Elko thing in 20. And I guess because we didn't get 20, 2021, but he started so hot in 20, you kind of knew it was probably coming. But Tim Elko in 20, you, I mean, you just had to give it to like six weeks, give him the fir- non-conference and then first couple weeks conference play and just see what it looks like. Like you mentioned, stockpiling at bats, get some sort of sample size in this small sample size sport and then just see, evaluate it from there. I completely agree. I think they got to give him the at bats. And the crazy part about this past weekend, I think the double was struck harder. That double was one of the hardest hit balls I've ever seen. The announcer, I don't know who the announcers were this week. I know the play-by-play guy, Seth Austin, but whoever the analyst was goes, you know, it's not often you see a ball four feet off the ground get to the fence. It's like, it's actually a fair point, man. Like, and that thing got to the fence in a hurry. Mm -hmm. It it pinballed off it. The power is insane. And as you alluded to, the wind was kind of blowing into the right on Sunday, wasn't it? Because the kid from Charleston Southern destroyed that ball off of McDaniel. And it didn't get over by that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Graham destroyed his ball, and it still just kind of landed in the bullpen. Alderman hit that the dead way center and didn't even put his hips into it. He just flicked at it, and that thing went to the batter's eye into a crosswind. He's he's so damn strong. I mean, from a bat speed standpoint, it's yeah, it, it, it's pretty incredible. Um, look, this lineup's going to bludgeon people. I mean, it's kind of what's going on right now. I mean, it's it's Arkansas State's not good. I mean, frankly, they're still going for their first win. Um, Charleston Southern had a couple of arms that were okay. I mean, I know we hammered them, and they were bad offensively. Their JUCO guys were nowhere near ready for this level. I mean, it was – the best JUCOs in the country have a hard time adjusting to SEC play. The JUCOs that end up in the in, in, in whatever conference they're in, that's not – that's not – the Big South, that's not pulling anything off. So, th- they were overmatched. But Ole Miss's relentlessness, one through nine, from an offensive standpoint, is going to win a lot of midweek games. And it's really going to look good, I think, on a lot of Sundays. If Ole Miss can just find much of any pitching on Sunday, whoever it ends up being, whether it's Drew or somebody else, you get into those deep game three bullpens. You get into those deals where they have to put in the guy that starts walking a little bit. Because 
I mentioned this on Monday, and it was maybe the best sign of anything that Ole Miss did over the weekend is that they did not press and have to swing. They took the walks. They worked the counts. They, th- there were so many mature veteran approaches. And early in the season, you want to swing away. You want to put the power numbers up there. Early in the season, you know, you're, you're a little loose with it, and you kind of have some batted bats a lot of times. They really didn't. They didn't have a ton of batted bats. They, they took pitches. They worked counts. They, they, they got pitchers out of there, even though they were hitting them enough to get them out of there anyway. It was it was bad baseball from the opponents, but there's something to that. If you can do that against Charleston Southern, I think that bodes well for SEC play. I mean, from a from an overall standpoint, what we went into the season thinking was Ole Miss probably had the best one through nine lineup in college baseball, and LSU probably had the best one two three in college baseball. And I think that's still through just four games, obviously no sample size at all. I think that maintains is true because Ole Miss goes 9-10 deep. They've looked incredibly good from a re- relentlessness all the way through. And then LSU is absolute hell with Cruz, Barry, and Duga. Yeah, I think you nailed it with the Sunday part of it too. And it even probably goes beyond that because in a league that's probably going to feature more offense than pitching, if you catch a middling SEC West team, and I haven't you know seen enough, obviously, after one weekend to know like who's good and who's not from a pitching staff standpoint, depth – but you catch a team that has a couple of good starters and like two bullpen arms and you catch the third guy in the sixth inning on a Saturday, they're going to blow a bunch of games open that way too. Like the middling SEC reliever is going to have a whale of a time with this lineup mm-hmm. that stays healthy and hits to the level that we think it could. And I think that's going to be a gigantic difference maker as well. And I think it's going to help them. I assume there's going to become a point this year where they're in flux a little bit in the rotation. I just don't see all three of these guys – being in their exact role as the entire year. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but like, I think it'll help them and give them some cushion to figure it out a little bit um, rotation wise and kind of try to find the best fit and the best pieces that go with that because they're going to hit so well. And then the other aspect of it, they suck so bad on the mound at times last year. Like they had some really weird midweek games. Didn't UT Martin win a midweek game last year? Like they would get down five, six, nothing in the sixth inning. And part of this is like a pitching point, but like, their offense is going to make a lot of these midweek games unwatchable. And I guess if you want to transition to like a pitching side of it, I'm curious in a couple of these midweeks, if they can get the bad teams out, if that makes sense. I mean, how many times last year did they get down like four, two or six, three or mm-hmm. something early in a game because Drew McDaniel would come in or whoever was sitting in the midweek and just couldn't get dudes out against inferior competition. I'm curious to see that as kind of a barometer for the pitching side of this as well. Well, and, you know, in, in Washburn, I think, was just amped up. I'm not really holding anything against him from a Wednesday standpoint. But he walks a couple guys. He maybe ended up walking four for the game. But, you know, he kind of struggled. They get they get a lead immediately. I mean, Arkansas State was up 2 nothing in the first on Wednesday. Now Ole Miss scored three in the bottom half, and it kind of went, went went to where it was. But figuring out Washburn, figuring out Delusia, figuring out those guys and kind of what they can do there, you know, that, that, that's a key because they just – you can get into some binds with some free passes and not pitching well and – starting the game poorly. I mean, it's kind of what got into Mallets at times last year when he was the midweek starter. He would he, – he was too – he was the other way. He did nothing but throw the ball down the middle of the plate to start games, and he'd give up double, 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 double because he wasn't even trying – he was just trying to get ahead, get ahead, and get ahead, and that's fine, but at some point you can't throw every pitch across the middle of the plate. So, no, that's a key. Um, and then what's most interesting about this team right now remains how the hell they're going to work out the pitching thing. and. I've asked Mike twice. He smiled at me today, and he he won't go there. They have to be a little frustrated they can't play innings. I, I don't care what he says. 
the thought process was never through four games to play 20 defensive innings instead of 27. That just it, it, that, that doesn't make sense. They have so many arms that need work. Brandon Johnson hasn't even pitched yet at this point. It's just crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's so many different things here. And I know some people say, and they're not wrong, that, hey, you can do simulated games. You can do different things. You're going to get them work. Not the but same. No, and the point is, especially for these newcomers, getting them in games with crowds and fans and umpires and just kind of getting their feet wet. And no matter if it's a blowout or not, getting those innings is really critical for pitchers. I mean, they get four or five newcomers. They're trying to figure out what they have between, you know, Riley Maddox looked amazing. He was one of the top three or four pitchers over the course of, of the weekend, but he's only been out there one time. You need to get him some more innings. Mason Nichols was fine. Get him some more innings. They, we've been people have been raving about Hunter Elliott since before he ever got to campus. Need to get him some innings. Matt Parento threw the ball really hard, and then you've got a couple returners that hey, are they taking that next step? Matt, you know, did you uh, make anything of that? Did you make anything of the fact that uh, Wes Burton, Jackson Kimbrell, and Josh Mallett did not pitch and have not pitched yet? It's not even the not pitched. Um, I, I tell you what is what has struck me about that is Mike doesn't really yeah. mention them. It's more of, you know, even in the media, even in the media day press conference where Mike talks about so many people, I don't think he mentioned any of those three pitchers unless he was directly asked about one of them. He just, it, it is, it has been a complete kind of thrown to the side thing. And look, I mean, Wes is going to get some opportunities for sure. I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I don't know about Kimbrell and, and, and Mallets, but what's essentially happened, it feels like, is that, you know, Mitch Morrell has taken a huge step. Um, I actually think he can throw the ball into the mid-90s and give him an inning here or there at times. Um, Mike has liked what he's seen from Cole Baker, who pitched today, struck out the one guy he faced to actually get the win, the way the game went weird um, there in the fifth inning today. But because of those dudes giving them some mid-90s velocity and giving them some some stuff out of the bullpen, I think they've kind of passed some of those other people at this point. And I think that, you know, look, you're prioritizing somewhere. I mean, you might need more arms. You, you definitely need more than Mike has typically used. But his goal right now, and it's what he talked about in the preseason, is he doesn't he doesn't want to look up and have 19 pitchers who have pitched, but, you know, half of them have thrown fewer than 10 innings on the season. He wants to find the whatever the right amount of a rotation is. And when I say rotation, I mean full pitching staff rotation and use that effectively throughout and, and get them enough innings and, and put them into different niches and roles and, and, and things and, and really figure out where each one of those guys is going to, is going to fit in at that point. And you can obviously exclude Doherty and Johnson from this camp. I think that's actually the reason Johnson hasn't pitched yet. And look, he got Doherty in on Sunday, but what I found interesting and you talk about like not being able to have takeaways so far, this is kind of like foul little notes away season. And there were a couple throughout the seat uh, so far through the three games, five, two game on Sunday. I don't think anyone in the building thought Ole Miss was per se losing that game, but it's not a blowout yet. And he goes to Hunter Elliott and Dylan Delucia instead of a West Burton and instead of a Jackson Kimbrell. And there may be nothing to read into that at all, but it's interesting as you add on to it, to him not mentioning him. And then from the innings part of it, he's dealing with an innings restriction because they can't play nine inning games. I listened to you all, you and Neil on Monday, and you mentioned the bunting aspect where Mike just bunted just to see, like, kind of have it in his head that he, you know, has a guy or a guy or two that could do it, which is great. But you killed Colin and I's theory, and it's really his theory that he bunted so the game would continue longer and he could get more innings. And we got real crazy with it. And uh, so that was disappointing to hear. But yeah, I mean, 
he went with the newcomers on that Sunday game when it was still kind of a game instead of, I guess, a little bit of a more known commodity. And there's a velocity aspect of that too, right? I mean, Hunter Elliott, Delucia kind of offer a little bit more than Kimbrell and Wes Burton do. Well, and assuming he's healthy, one of the, 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 the of the three, the one that surprises me the most is because of the, the way the staff is set up as Jackson Kimbrell. Because he's looked okay at times. He's been he's been very helpful at times for the Rebels, and he's left-handed. Yep. They don't have left-handed arms. I mean, Mike, once a week right now, keeps mentioning their lack of left-handers and how they need things out of their left-handers. So if you're a left-hander who's not pitching, that feels like it says something. I mean, I don't know. Again, it's still early in the season. We'll see. But there's been very little mention, and he hasn't thrown to this point. And, and Mike has been steadfast about not having enough left-handers on this roster and then with with Burton, he had a pretty rough fall. It got a little better there toward the end, but it was it was it was bad at times. He just got to throw strikes. I mean, you know, it's people have focused so much on velocity, but Wes is like the prime candidate for letting analytics tell you that that's not everything because he's eighty nine to ninety one most of the time, but he's six eight, which is including re- is, that's going to increase reach to the plate. That's going to give you a net little extra from a timing standpoint, ball to glove kind of deal, and then two. He's got a lot of the way his 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 just analytics are with the the reach and where he lets the release point go and all of those different things. It's going to look more 93-94 out of his hand to a hitter than 89-91 just because of some of those extra those extra factors. But he's just got to throw strikes. He's just walked too many people. He's gotten behind in counts. He's battled back out of it. His ERA was pretty good. He struck some guys out. But with him, it's earning Mike's trust to throw strikes. And I don't know what goes into that. I haven't seen all the inner squads. I don't know what it, what it looks like. But, you know, Mallets is the one that I'm just hearing nothing. I have no idea. I mean, maybe Mike pitches him Friday night seven innings. I have no freaking clue. But I, have, I, I know nothing about it. But for different reasons, I, I am surprised. And then it also tells me something with Kimbrell and Burton and kind of where they are right now. Yeah, because it, here's a question. You're there's such thing as keeping up with college baseball recruiting. I feel like you'd be the person to ask. I don't know if you're about to start like daily chicks for it, but he, when is the last time they've been left-handed heavy? It's been like I feel like it's been like five or six years. And is there something to that? Why is that? I get there's more right-handed people in the world than left-handed. Like I got that out of the way, but like <laughs> I, it feels like there's been because they were even less. As two left-handed people have a conversation right now. Yeah, exactly. I saw a tweet the other day. So the the entire traveling Cincinnati Reds beat, all six of them are left-handed, and then I joined as the seventh. How freaky is that? No uh, shit. Yeah, one of them put out a tweet on left-handers day the other day, and I was like, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, so all seven of us were watch on the right-hands guys up there. But weird stuff. But why is like why is that the case? Like I, I don't understand it because you talk about him complaining about that this year. Last year it was the same thing minus Hunter Elliott. He was actually more left-handed depraved last year, was he not? I don't get that. My only real – if you want to give me a – if you want to give you any semblance of a scientific reason, I don't know. But my theory is that the two things that Ole Miss struggles with from a roster standpoint are the two things that are the most expensive from a scholarship standpoint. And if you have an 11.7 issue or you don't have what everybody else has, you're going to struggle with two things. You're going to struggle with true outfielders, like c- completely nothing but outfielders, because those are going to be guys that really hit the baseball or really give you some tools in the outfield, and you're going to struggle with left-handed pitching. I think outfielders and pitching and left-handed pitchers are potentially more expensive, A. Two, they're more draft kind of guys if they're really elite at those things. And then three, 
there's tons of competition for them and it's harder to go into other states and spend enough scholarship money to get them at that point. I mean, because Mississippi as a whole, there's things they do really well. They have very athletic inbuilders. They have good arms. They struggle with college-ready outfielders, guys who can come into a program as an outfielder and be ready to go from day one. That's For whatever reason, that's not a Mississippi prep, Mississippi product uh, strong suit. And when you're going into other states, that's a more complicated thing. Because, I mean, you go back even over the last six, seven years, there's just not a lot of them. I mean, you're talking about, you know, Austin Bousfield and J.B. Woodman and, I mean, some of those dudes. But since then, it's been almost all converted infielders out there. That's a great answer. One, is there a third you could ask, to it? I'm mostly just asking at this point. The elite-level velo guys, is that something else that plays into it? Because, like, I saw I saw a clip of a – I was watching a piece of Tennessee's midweek game before we started recording – some dude they brought in relief was like 99 to 101. And I was like, where the hell did they find this cat? And then Vander, I mean, of course, Vanderbilt, I know the story behind that, but like the Maldonados of the world, like, but like Landon Sims, like when is the last time Ole Miss has had something like that? And I know those don't grow on trees for college baseball period, but there does seem to be teams with scholarship advantages, have a couple more dudes in the pen that can kind of hit the 95, 97 range, I should say, that Ole Miss doesn't seem to have as often. I'm trying to think, and honestly, I can't think of one over the last five years unless I'm just forgetting something. I mean, you know, like way back in the day, you know, we saw like, you know, Cody Satterwhite coming in and throwing his first that pitch was the only name for his career or something. Um, and most of them are really raw because if they're – frankly, let's be honest, if they're not raw, they're going pro. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of the times you're getting those kind of guys that they don't have a lot of pitchability. They don't have much feel. There's not much second or third pitch. They just throw the absolute hell out of it. And then you see what they what, what they can do from there. So that's some of it. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's a good question. Ole Miss, I feel like, has seen a drop in average team velocity over the last two or three years. And, I mean, again, why that is, I have no idea. I wouldn't even be able to speculate. And it probably is not much of anything. But I feel like when I watch an Ole Miss pitcher, I'm seeing a lot of the same guy. You know, we know they go a lot. They, we, we know their fastball slider a lot. We know they've taken a lot of curveballs. I mean, Riley Maddox uh, talked about it, that they had switched him from a curveball to a slider since he had arrived on campus. But when you're mostly right-hand dominant, you're mostly 89 to 93, and you throw fastball slider and changeup, there's just not much variance. It, it, it's maybe it's, – it's not even really a criticism – but it's you see a lot of college baseball teams, and I think there's a place for that lefty thumber, for that guy who does throws the absolute hell out of it, but it's wild, and you got him in there. Just anything to kind of break it up because it's one of Ole Miss's things on how do you put how do you put a game together from a pitching staff standpoint, and there's very little variance. When they take somebody out, it's, it, there's not a ton of options to find somebody that gives you a different look because if you go however you want to do it, you know, you end up going – you know, Diamond, Doherty, you do all these different things. It's kind of the same guy in a lot of ways. I mean, maybe they have some little better off speed or they got a little better something or other, but you're just not really changing a lot of arm angles. You're not changing a lot of eye levels. You're not giving them something that spins a ton. Um, it's it's a nitpick because obviously Ole Miss has pitched pretty damn well over the course of Mike's tenure, but there is something to having a little more flexibility with some different options in your bullpen. I've never thought about it like that from just not very much variance and having the same guy. We played this game a lot. I thought about like three or four questions in my head throughout us talking of that would piss him off the most. Like walk up and just ask him, do you hate Hayden Leatherwood? 
What do you not like about him, Mike? Do you feel like the lack of left-handed pitching is an oversight in recruiting on your part? That'd probably get him going. That's the one where it, you know, yes, that would not be the way to ask that. I do wonder if you could get the real answer though, because it, but you have it's to weird. get him off the side for that. It's where you're just te- like you know sometimes he'll stop and talk like before the scrum or whatever. That feels like something that that would get answered then. It's that, and it's also if I'm right on the reason, you're never going to get that answer because. I don't know if it's Mike's credit or stupidity or however you want to phrase it. He's never going to blame a scholarship situation on anything. He doesn't want to talk about it. He's not going to mention it. He's not going to go there whatsoever. But to me, that makes sense that those dudes are just so damn expensive. It's just hard to kind of make it work from, from a couple of those different aspects. So I, I I don't know. We'll see. Uh, VCU this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, a team that really hit the baseball well last year. I I don't know what they have back. I haven't gotten them looking at the returners yet. At this point, but they uh, they've had some postseason experience. They were, I guess, a two or a three seed in Starkville last year, if I remember that correctly. Um, maybe the two. Now that I think about it, I, I'm not really sure. But uh, they were they, they were pretty decent. They they made a postseason, so they'll have some guys. Weather pretty decent. You've got that basketball baseball overlap on Saturday as well. So we'll uh, we'll see. I'm sure you guys will have plenty of takes on your podcast coming up. You're about to record right now as we let go, but that'll be up here uh maybe even before people see this video from that standpoint but anyway uh any final thought for let you go no i think that just about covered it but if you if if you need a list of questions to get mike going i have uh i'll start a diary you have a few yeah i've got quite a few yeah all right well that's brian rippy i'm chase Parham. we will uh, be back with more oxford exxon podcasts but until then we'll uh we'll talk to you very soon That was Chase Parham, Brian Rippey from, uh, I guess, Wednesday when they taped that. A little bit of breaking news during uh, the tape playing of that taping. Ole Miss has completed its uh, football coaching staff yet again. They had a special teams opening after um, some uh, after a hire went uh, left for the Los Angeles Rams after five days on the job. It's uh, Purdue's Marty Biaggi has been hired by Lane Kiffin, according to multiple sources, both at Purdue and Ole Miss. So uh, it's my understanding he's on his way to Oxford now. He interviewed with uh, Ole Miss today. I'm not sure whether that was virtually or on the phone or what that was or whether he interviewed and went back to Purdue and then came back. I don't know. Anyway, on his way to Oxford, we'll join the Ole Miss staff. We'll be there in plenty of time for our recruiting as it kind of gets going again next week in terms of high school kids when the dead period ends uh, Ole Miss involved, of course, in the transfer portal right now. We got a commitment earlier this week from Kari Coleman. Talked transfer portal and a lot of other topics earlier today with Ryan Brown of the next round. We talked SEC basketball, SEC football, the future of the college football playoff, and so much more. I think you guys will uh, enjoy this interview. It's Ryan Brown of the next round and myself for about 50-some-odd minutes here on Hand Raise Guys, presented by Comer Heating and Air and Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. Here's Ryan. Ryan Brown of the next round joins us. First time in a little while. Ryan, thanks for spending some time with us here on a – when people see this, it'll be Thursday evening, Friday morning, that kind of thing. But thanks for spending the late part of your week with us. Appreciate it. Neil, how are you, man? It's uh, been a while. Man, I'm good. I'm good. Just um, getting to the end of of a long basketball season here, honestly. Uh, it's not been, <laughs> it's been quite tough as – been to watch there, hasn't it? Yeah, it hadn't been quite as exciting as the one in your state where both teams are headed to the tournament and – um. 
I wasn't going to start with basketball, but we'll start with basketball for a minute. I'm kind of curious. Um, sure. You, you guys watch um, three programs a lot: Alabama, Auburn, UAB. All three fighting for the NCAA tournament. UAB probably at the point now. Andy Kennedy and company. Andy's probably got to win the conference tournament to to get in at this yeah. point. Um, I'll I'll start with him. There's some rumblings about. Andy and SEC jobs. Uh, I know Missouri is probably coming open. I've heard his name associated there. Georgia is assuredly coming open. I've heard it pop up there. There's even some rumblings about Mississippi State. Do you hear anything there in Birmingham as it pertains to the former Ole Miss coach? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the question is being asked because I do think a lot of people, and this may not be, you know, Ole Miss fans, and by the way, how dare you not mention Jacksonville State uh, clinched their conference last night. I, I apologize. You're run, running down the basketball greatness here in this state. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> to the, the mighty Gamecocks, yes. That's right, rock shot Gamecock. <laughs> um, the, you know, I, it's, it's starting to be some rumbles about Andy here because of the success he's had, and everybody likes Andy. And, and what I was about to say, is this may not be apples to apples. You may say, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're ignoring a lot of factors here. But just the record, you know, you, you start comparing Kermit Davis to Andy and, you know, what, what's really changed? You know, what's really changed? In fact, in a lot of ways, it's probably, I don't have it in front of me, but I would guess if you go, what is Kermit in year four? Am I right about yeah, that? Yeah, he's wrapping up his fourth season. Yeah, so if you go first four year versus first four years, Andy's record's probably better. If I had to guess, now again, you know there are a lot of factors in that. So, but I think a lot of people are looking at that and saying, well, maybe in hindsight, Andy did a little better job at Ole Miss than what he was ultimately given credit for. Um, Andy's such a well-liked guy. Everybody, I mean, you know that. To know Andy is to like Andy, and he's such a great salesman for our program. My gut tells me he's being, you know, you know, Ole Miss paid him a little bit to go away, and he's being pretty well compensated here. But he loves Birmingham. He loves living here. He loves the city. He's well supported here by the business people of the city because they like Andy. Um, I, I think you, you know, you mentioned a couple programs there. One of them is Georgia. I, I don't get the sense that Andy is just going to jump for money to a program where it has been historically hard to win. With all due respect to Ole Miss, which is a school I love, it's been historically difficult to win at that program. Yeah, no question. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, so he's—I mean, you've had you've had your moments. What was it? Uh, Rob Barnes was he the guy that that made a Sweet Sixteen run? Yeah, Rod Barnes took him to the Sweet Sixteen. Okay. Uh, took him to the round of thirty-two. Um, Rob Evans had some success. Andy made a couple of tournaments, yeah. but just getting to I, getting to the tournament historically has been difficult for Ole Miss. Yeah, and you go look at Georgia. And that's the same thing in Georgia. I mean, you had years ago, Hugh Durham, mm -hmm. you know, took him on a run. It, like Jim Herrick, you know, had him in the tournament some. But that, I mean, historically has been a really, really difficult place to win. So I think Andy has done that at Ole Miss and knows how tough that can be and what can be a good conference at times to turn this thing around. Missouri's a little bit different. I mean, Missouri's had a history. Norm Stewart, I think, had him in an Elite Eight. Mike Anderson had him in an Elite Eight. So yep. maybe you can win a little bit more up there. But I just don't get the sense, you know, he's going to jump at a program. Now, if, if if Mike White got fired in Florida and they wanted Andy, you know, that's a different story there. You've seen how you can win at that program. Lon Kruger has done it. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Billy Donovan did it. His name's on the court. Yeah. So, 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 you know, I, I think it would be a different story at a place like that. I just don't know that he would jump at a place where it's been historically difficult to get a team in a tournament. 
Speaking of jumping, do you get any sense at all that some of the rumblings out there about Nate Oates going to be a super hot commodity? And obviously he's done a great job at Alabama. We were looking Thursday morning on the Oxford Exxon podcast just at their schedule. Yeah. Just his scheduling alone put them in a spot to make the tournament. No uh, no tier four games, no quad four games. None. Uh, they they only played good games. They played a lot of neutral site games. They went on the road. They picked up some wins. Even though they have 10 losses, they're going to the tournament and and, and probably as a fairly decent seed, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing a six maybe, somewhere in there. Um, he's a guy who has obviously proven he can win. Um, do you Do you get a sense that others are going to come after him? Well, I think Alabama has has made it. First of all, he got a good contract extension with a pretty big buyout last year after his Sweet 16 run. Um, in fact, the last time he was on this show, we discussed it with him because I can't remember. I think it was the Louisville job that had just come open or maybe the Louisville. Yeah, I mean, Louisville's obviously, um, obviously open with Chris Mack. And I think we just kind of discussed it. And and he said himself, you know, I got a pretty big buyout here. And so, I mean, he's he's well aware of that. Alabama has announced plans in this, Neil. You know, you lived in this state. This has been talked about for a long time, replacing Coleman Coliseum. And that is something very early when Nate Oates took this job on our show. It kind of made a little headlines around here because he very openly talked about how hopeful he was that Alabama would address that very quickly. And they've announced plans now to build it. Now, that's going to be not a quick process here. It's going to take time, but it's at least on the you know, it's at least a reality. Now you've seen what the building's going to look like and they've talked about where they're going to put it. So I think those things, you know, Alabama's paying him in a position where to get a pay raise, he's going to have to take a primo job. The one that always stands out there, if he has any kind of success, his ties to the state of Michigan, he's always going to be, you know, at least rumored to be in on a Michigan state job when Tom Izzo retires. And if you're Alabama, that's going to be hard to beat that one. I mean, yeah. that's a historically really good program, right? And, and, you know, that Nate's got his background there from his high school days in the state of Michigan. So, but here's what I've always said about this. If you got a coach that's good enough to replace Tom Izzo, you thank him for his time. He's made your program yep. better. Yep. And you're, you're, good, you're in a better position to hire a coach than you probably were when you hired that guy. It's the length so, of the thing at Ole Miss. Yeah. Everybody worries yeah. about whether he's going to leave. You'd rather have a coach who other people want and who might ultimately leave you for a, quote, better job one day than yeah. a coach that nobody's ever going to go after. That's typically a sign that you're not moving the needle. And, and well, Oates, you know, has, yeah. Oates has moved the needle in Tuscaloosa. Yeah, you know, I, I, as I was joking with you about Jacksonville State. You know that's where I went to school. But I was in school at Jacksonville State for two years. The basketball coach was Mark Turgeon. That was his first job. He was a Kansas assistant for uh, – I can't remember who the Kansas coach was then – um, maybe Roy Williams, I guess. Hey, that uh, sounds yeah, right. Was yeah, he? he had a history with Larry yeah. Brown, I know. So anyway, Turgeon had, you know, had been an assistant and he took the Jack State job and two years later took the Wichita State job. And everybody's like, oh, we can't make that mistake again. I'm like, what are you kidding? Wichita State's a pretty good program and they just hired the Jacksonville State coach. You don't want that again? Why would you not want that again? You know? You'd want to repeat that as many times as you could over and over and yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah, and, and obviously Alabama's a far more prominent program than Jacksonville State. But, I mean, to, to my point there, I mean, if, if a big program comes in and hires my guy, I'm like, okay, well, he obviously did a really good job here. I'd like to have kept him, but realistically, I wasn't going to. 
You watch some basketball. We're going to get to football in a minute, I promise, because our pe- people are wanting to hear your thoughts on some of the football storylines that are out there. This Auburn team, I've watched them a lot. I've said this many times. People are going to roll their eyes, but my son's so into the draft and the Thunder mm-hmm. possibly having a top three pick. and We went to see Jabari Smith. We watched Jabari Smith when he's on TV. We discussed Jabari Smith almost like he's a family member. Auburn doesn't get the ball to Jabari Smith enough, and their guards sometimes get weird late in games. They're obviously a very good team. They're a Final Four-capable team. There's no question about that. When you watch them, do you sense that they're going to put it together in time for March, or do you think this guard thing's going to bite them in the tournament? Well, I mean, it is their Achilles heel. In their, in their you know, last two losses, they had ball-in-hand final possession and had two awful possessions. And the common denominator in both of them was, you know, not getting Jabari Smith involved enough. So, I mean, that's a, that's a huge concern because, and it is a concern for Bruce Pearl and he's talked about it because you know, down the stretch, you're going to play in the NCAA tournament. No team ever goes to an NCAA tournament where you don't play a game where it's that final possession. You got to have a bucket, yeah, you know, to, to force overtime or avoid overtime, whatever. Um, so, you know, you know you're going to face this, and Auburn's been actually really bad in those situations. So, I mean, that, that, is a, that is a concern for this team. But, you know, Jabari Smith has been on a run where he's had some of his better games for Auburn. But Bruce Pearl has been asked about it a lot, getting the ball in Jabari Smith's hands. I mean, it's a super talented team, but the, the criticism of this Auburn team has been that backcourt likes to play a little bit of hero ball at times. And you've got – a guy that is a unicorn, man. He's 6'10". He's got great handle. He's a terrific shooter. I mean, there's no way to defend him, Neil, when he's really playing his game. If you bring out a guy that's big enough to defend him on the on the perimeter, he's just going to drive right past that guy. And if you put a guard on him, he's going to shoot right over him. He's a guy, and I've listened to so much NBA draft stuff, um, driving to and from Tupelo to soccer practices and whatnot, and, and, and he's a guy that if you listen to NBA people who know that game, they'll tell you, yeah, the, the flaw in his game as a college player is that he's not a guy who can go get the ball, stall for 15, 20 seconds, take that last shot. You've got to create offense to get it to yeah. him. He can make a shot off the bounce. Obviously, he can, he can post up. He can do things. He's got moves. But he's not a guy that just goes and gets the ball – Hey, everybody, spread out. You know, he's he's going to be an option on an NBA team. Probably not the franchise face of an NBA team right away. But Auburn kind of needs him to go be that alpha, and he yeah. might not be to that stage of his of his basketball life yet. You know, where he's ready to go take over a game. Just hand, hand me the ball, get the hell out of the way. I'm gonna go do this. And so they've got to seek him out. They've got to create something for him, and that's. Against Arkansas late, like you said, against Florida late, they, they didn't do that and didn't do anything resembling that. And you're like, oh, boy. Because you're right. The way the tournament works, it's, it's almost inevitable. Whatever your Achilles heel is, yep. it, it either is going to take you down or right there in the tournament with everybody watching, you overcome it. And then when yep. you overcome it, you're like, oh, they're scary now because they, they just stared down the big monster and they got past it. Or they slayed it, and now they're they're off to the races. But you know, this team's potentially got two lottery guys on it. Jabari Smith is, and if Kessler. Walker Kessler came back another year, and he's not right now, but if he came back another year with his size, if his game developed, he could easily be a lottery pick. You know, yeah. in the NBA anymore, 
that guy's got to really show you you can shoot from the outside to be a lottery pick. I mean, the 7-1 guy isn't what he was when you and I were kids, and that 7-1 guy was David Robinson or Patrick Ewing or Akeem Olajuwon, right? I mean, those guys played a different game than what Walker Kessler has to in today's NBA, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. Both those guys could be lottery guys if Kessler came back next year. So it's obviously a talented roster, but you're right. I mean, you've got an obvious Achilles heel that has bitten you a couple times there. You're going to have to overcome that in an NCAA tournament at some point. Yeah, to your point, I've heard NBA people talk about Chet Holmgren, the seven foot two, yep. whatever he is, guy at Gonzaga, as a three. I mean, they talk about him as a wing, you know, and right. some teams obviously look at him and go, he's going to grow into a center or whatever. But in today's NBA, you don't really play a center necessarily. You, it's it's positionless basketball. So that's that's yep. where, yeah, and Smith's going to be great at it. At the next level, uh, let's get to some football topics. I, I do yeah. want to get your thoughts on on Ole Miss. Uh, since the last time we talked, Ole Miss has signed everyone in the transfer portal. They just went into the portal <laughs> and signed everybody, and uh, we're working on trying to get NIL deals with half of them. And and so, but they got Jackson Dart and Zach Evans and Troy Brown. I'm leaving people out. Uh, very active in the transfer portal. You you keep a close eye on this. What have you thought of what Ole Miss has done since um, the Sugar Bowl? Well, I loved it because, I mean, the obvious question was quarterback, you know? I mean, you're going to lose Matt Corral to the NFL. And, you know, I think most people in this state, you know, they the um, and the backup's name escapes me, Neil. I am so sorry. Luke Altmaier. Yeah, Luke Altmaier. Mm-hmm. So when Altmaier came in after Corral's injury against Auburn, they were very, very limited offensively, and then obviously in the Sugar Bowl when he came in. So I think everybody had realized, hey, Altmaier doesn't appear to be the future plan. So, you know, Lane Kiffin develops quarterbacks better than anyone. It doesn't look like this Altmaier is going to be a guy he can develop. Um, so I think everybody was waiting to see what's he going to do at quarterback. Now, I do the show with a huge USC fan, Lance Taylor, one of my co-hosts, and the day Jackson Dart came in, he came in, he's like, this guy's different, man. This this Jackson Dart guy is something else. Now, he had said the same thing about Keaton Slovis when Slovis replaced JT Daniels. He's He told us, he's like, man, when Daniels gets healthy, I don't know if he's going to get his job back. Keaton Slovis is too good. And sure enough, Slovis kept that job. But then when Jackson Dart came in, I was like, man, this is the same thing you said about Keaton Slovis. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, hey, that's how good he is. I yeah. like this Jackson Dart. So, you know, that was kind of my entryway in the dart. And when I watched him, you Drake London were a heck of a combo. And unfortunately, London got hurt. and He's going to be, you know, top 15 wide receiver at USC. So I really, really like Jackson Dart. And I can't wait to see what Lane Kiffin does with him because I don't know that there's a guy I respect coaching quarterbacks. Jacob Hester was on our show today. And I asked Hester that question. I'm like, it's funny you brought this up because I asked him that question. I'm like, you know, everybody in this state, the Alabama fans of this state, trust Lane Kiffin implicitly with quarterback because they saw it year after year after year. Those quarterbacks were really good under him. And I asked Hester, and he's like, hey, listen, my high school teammate uh, is one of the booties, right? Yeah. Played with played for Kiffin and, or, or, uh, and tells me this guy is legit. He's the guy that any quarterback he touches is going to, going to reach the peak of his ability. So I asked Kester that, and he's like, I absolutely believe that about Lane Kiffin. And he agreed with me. I can't wait to see what he can do with a talent like Jackson Dart. Yeah, I, th- I think the proof of that, that he has that reputation, is that while I don't believe Caleb Williams and his father ever seriously considered Ole Miss, but they came out and said this mm-hmm. as much, that 
they really liked Kiffin, and that was he, he caught their he got their attention. They I, I think always were going to end up at USC. I think they had to do the dog and pony show and yeah. look around, but I think that was clear. You you had to make it look like it was something else. Um, you look around the league, Ryan, and and South Carolina's heavy in the portal. They they um they go get Spencer Rattler. Um, Arkansas lost a bunch of dudes in the portal, get a bunch of dudes out of the portal. I mean, it's almost like a, they did trades with Georgia and LSU and, and whatnot. How big of a deal is the portal moving forward when you when you look ahead when some of these programs that maybe can't recruit the five-star players in this era of NIL, do you see more and more programs doing what Ole Miss is doing and, and using yeah. maybe half their scholarships on the portal? Yeah, I, I do. And I tell you, the most interesting part of it to me, too, is don't forget, maybe Alabama's third best player last year not only was a portal guy, he was a portal guy after spring football. Jamison Williams yeah. came to Alabama after spring. So, and he ended up being, you know, look, I mean, Bryce Young with the Heisman, Will Anderson is an, an, an incredible player. Jamison Williams might have been the third best player. And that's a guy that they got out of the portal after spring. So it's interesting. You've got these two signing days and it's almost like you've got these two portal windows. You're going to get it after the regular season around the you know traditional signing period, you know, in February. And then you're going to get that secondary one where there are going to be some big names occasionally that will move in the spring. So, I mean, I am fascinated to watch it, but I do think it creates an issue with these coaches. How do you deal with scholarships? Because, you know, there had been speculation, at least Neil, that, that Keishawn Boutte might, might be one of those guys that leaves LSU after spring ball. Any coach in America would take Keishawn Boutte, right? I mean, that's sure. one of the best receivers in football. Right away. But what do you, yeah, but what do you do about your scholarships? You know, am I going to hold one out and not sign a guy or not take another portal guy in hopes he comes? Or is there going to be some guy that has that mysteriously career ending injury and I end up freeing up his scholarship, right? I mean, that to me is the tricky part of it because we have seen there can still be some movement in that, se- you know, whatever you would call it, that secondary portal window. To your point, Ole Miss is going to add six or seven more guys in the second window. I mean, they're, they're yeah. nowhere close to done. They just took a commitment the other day from Kari Coleman, the defensive lineman slash linebacker from TCU, and they might add it one of his TCU teammates. They're, they're probably going to add Deion Smith, the wide receiver from LSU who's originally from Jackson. I mean, they're going to sign seven more guys potentially. Well, I mean, but Neil, Alabama, I mean, Nick Saban recruits as good as anyone, right? Yeah, sure. Their best receiver next year is probably going to be Jermaine Burton, you know, the Florida transfer. Their starting running back could be Jamar Gibbs, the Georgia Tech transfer. I mean, as good as Nick Saban recruits, because a lot of people were like, well, this is good for the schools that miss on recruiting. Alabama doesn't miss a whole lot on recruiting. I mean, Nick Saban's pretty good at it. And two of his most important offensive players next year are going to be guys that they've gotten out of the portal. So, I mean, it's not just for the schools that don't recruit. I mean, Alabama's at the top of the game in recruiting, and they're still finding prominent players out of that portal. It's so funny how fast the narrative has shifted on recruiting to where now people are talking about, hey, if you're one of these programs that you're taking 25 high school guys, you're gambling. And it's like, well, just two years ago – that's what everybody did. I mean, you took I you can get twenty five high profile high school guys. You bring them in. Some of them are ready. Some of them have to be developed. Now, development time is viewed as a gamble because you yeah. might be developing somebody else's player. He might get disgruntled. He might run out of patience. If you're a smaller school, he's going to get an NIL offer to go to a bigger school. You have all that stuff. So the whole 
idea of bringing guys into your program who aren't quite ready, but you think they have a high ceiling and you develop them, that went from being the M.O. of a program like Alabama, frankly, to now that's considered kind of dangerous. I mean, think about, like, if you're Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech, you had to fight to keep your job, and next year's your year. I mean, he's been 3-9, and 3-9, and 3-9. and nine. He's got to win next year to keep his job. And all of a sudden, the running back that you've recruited and developed, and he's one of the better running backs in the country, says, well, I think I'll go finish up at a, at a place that's always playing in that championship game. Yeah. And you can't blame him for that. I mean, you know, he gave a lot to Georgia Tech. You can't blame him for – for taking the Alabama spot right there. But if I find Jeff Collins, that might be the difference of me keeping my job and losing my job. And a lot of people will say, well, Collins should recruit better. He shouldn't be in that situation. And that may be true. But it's also true that losing a guy like Jameer Gibbs, who you recruited and you developed, could be the difference in you keeping a job and losing a job. So, I mean, it's, it's you're right. I mean, there is a huge, huge risk in doing that. But I also don't blame the big schools like an Ole Miss or an Alabama for – avoiding the recruiting bust. I know Jameer Gibbs is not a recruiting bust. I know Jackson Dart's probably not a recruiting bust. I've seen those guys in action now. Why would I not take those yeah, guys, right? Yeah, a proven body of work right yeah, there. You know yeah. that they can Why handle that yeah. stage. You might think, hey, I can make him better, or there's some things about him that we think he would fit better with us, or maybe like uh, Kari Coleman, who's a good example, who I think is going to be an impact player at Ole Miss. You know, he, he had some ups and downs at TCU, but you've seen him play in the Big 12. And yeah. so not only do you know his strengths, now you know his weaknesses too. You know when you bring him to Oxford or Tuscaloosa or whatever, you bring him in and you know, okay, these are the things that we've seen him struggle with. So maybe these are situations where we need to get him off the field or these are situations where we need to work with him to develop him. Maybe this is an area where we have to insulate him a little bit. When you have a high school guy, even the great high school players, with, the, with a handful of exceptions obviously, you just never really know. Um, yeah. what, you know, what I, you I'll have. Tell you what, I, yeah, I'll tell you what it does, too, though, on the other side of that is it cranks up the pressure, and I'm certain we're going to get to Brian Harson. but yeah, to, to speak of Brian Harson, you knew you were losing Bo Nix, you know, from Auburn, right? I mean, you knew that going into the, the transfer portal season, and the best you came up with was Zach Calzada. And if Auburn struggles next year, that's going to be even more reason that Auburn people want to get rid of Auburn's boosters, want to get rid of Brian Harson because they're like, look at all those guys that were out there in the transfer portal. We got Zach Calzada. That's that's the guy you went to battle with in the SEC. And I'm sure Zach Calzada is a nice kid, but we've seen him in the South Eastern Conference. Yeah. To your point of what we're talking about, the Alabama game is the outlier. Everything else, he has been a 50% passer. And hasn't really done anything to, to to win football games. We not only we saw him, we saw him with a very good quarterback coach and Jimbo Fisher, mm-hmm. with a very good offensive lineman, uh, offensive line in front of him, had two yep. good backs behind him, so yep. there was a running game that he could lean on, and he'll have that some of that at Auburn too. But the Auburn deal, and I, I don't, I mean, it's a soap opera, I know, but when you just <laughs> stop with the even the drama and you look at their roster and what they've lost and what they've brought in and compare it to the rest of the league I'm not sure that I couldn't I can't put them above sixth going into next season in the west and I don't know that I can put them sixth I mean any realistic person looks at it and says that um you know they they were extremely fortunate uh, assuming and I'm not this is not being cryptic I'm just saying you always have to leave this door open Assuming Tank Bigsby 
lives up to his commitment and stays and doesn't enter that second round of the transfer portal, sure, right? Sure. Um, they were very fortunate to keep him. But aside from that, you know, an offensive line that struggled last year, you got some of those guys back, but it's one of those mixed, mixed blessings. Like, oh, I've got some of those guys back. Maybe that's yeah. not the great thing. At receiver, you've got nothing, absolutely nothing at wide receiver. Um, you know, you're tied in. That's pretty positive there. Quarterback, I don't even know who the starter is. I guess it's Zach Calzada. Almost it's has CJ. to be, doesn't it? Well, I mean, unless the only thing is they signed Holden Gurner, who was, who was a true freshman. If that kid is something else, maybe he starts. If it's TJ Finley, God help you. Mm-hmm. You've seen TJ Finley. No. I mean, that's, that, yeah, that's awful. I mean, there, and, and then on top of that, you fire your offensive coordinator. You wanted to hire a guy out of Arizona State, but that that is radioactive right now, anything coming out of Arizona State, so you couldn't do that. You hire a guy who's on the job for a week and decides, I have screwed this up, or you decide you've screwed it up, whatever the actual story is. He's gone. You end up just promoting a guy from within, which obviously you didn't want to do to begin with, or you would have promoted him to begin with. I mean, it's 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 got potential to be a huge mess, and – Neil, you know, because you, you've lived that program for a long time, the people that wanted Brian Harson fired aren't going to just take a loss and say, well, we lost that one. Guess we got Brian Harson as a coach for a while. No, they're going to make another lap on that one. And yeah. if you go six and six, they're going to make that lap in December. Trust me. Okay. You might have just answered my next question. Can he even make it to the Iron Bowl? I don't know. I that mean, schedule's brutal, man. It is, but look at the front end of it. That's the one thing that will keep him afloat is the front end of it is five home games, and none of them are particular backbreakers. You know, I don't know how good Penn State's going to be. I don't have that schedule in front of me, but I think before they hit the road, LSU is the last one they play. And I don't know what Brian Kelly is going to have year one at LSU. They're probably going to be a better team than Auburn, Uh, but you get it at home. But once you get past that LSU game, I mean, that is a brutal game that is full of tough road venues. I just don't know how you survive that. Because they have to go to Ole Miss. They have to go to uh, Mississippi State. they got to go to Alabama. Yep. I mean, just and some of the teams that they get at home, like I think LSU. Georgia. Yeah. I mean, They go to Georgia? Yeah. Yep. I think LSU is better than them. I think Arkansas is better than them. Uh, I don't disagree with either one of those. I think those yeah. are. I mean, those are tough. Those are tough assignments. And they'll get some of I mean, them. There's nobody. There, there's nobody they're obviously better than that they that they play from the Southeastern Conference. I mean, look at their SEC schedule. Give me a team you would say, okay, they're obviously better than that team. Vanderbilt's not on that schedule, Neil. Yeah, I don't have their schedule in front of me. I, I'd be. I should be better prepared. No, 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 no. I don't have it in front of me either. I live in this state. I'm just, Vanderbilt. I'm, my point is, Vanderbilt's not on the schedule. Yeah, Vanderbilt isn't there. So you can't just say, oh, they obviously are better than that team. They're not. Right. They're not uh, obviously better than any conference team they play. You're Whereas right. I can go. I can go down Alabama's schedule or Georgia's schedule. Okay, they're obviously better than those teams, right? What did you make of Saban with some of the comments that he made? Uh, I thought his comments about rugs were profound. They, they were something that, frankly, people needed to hear. I yeah. thought his comments about the injuries going into the championship game and guys didn't step up and all that. While I know that he he was being frank, and I appreciate that, it felt odd for me. I've never heard him call out guys like that in yeah. that sort of setting. It felt like something different from Nick Saban. And I do think the setting context does matter because he was speaking to a coach's convention, and 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 the 
context in which he told the story without using names. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out who he's talking about. <laughs> no. I mean, the, there were a handful of guys that spent a whole lot of time bitching about their playing time on social media. And then on the biggest stage, they actually get that playing time and they crap the bed. I mean, it's pretty obvious who he's talking about, yes, right? Sure. But he's, he's doing it at the Alabama High School Coaches Convention. And he literally says, this is a good message for your team, right? You had a lot of guys that complained about their circumstances and didn't, instead of getting ready to be good if their name is called, they just complained about their circumstances. And then their name's called on the biggest stage and they haven't prepared for it, right? Right. And he's saying, this is a good message. This is a good lesson for your team. Uh, it's such a good lesson, by the way. John Calipari himself used that little piece of speech before they played Alabama, right? Because <laughs> he had... <laughs> Severe Wheeler is out and Ty Ty Washington's out, so he's got some backups playing. He's got, hey, guys, watch this. Here's here's the best football coach of the game talking about what you guys are about to do tomorrow. So I do think context matters, Context matters that that's where he was saying. Was Absolutely, for sure. And he's giving them, here's a good here's a good coaching, you know, here's a good piece of coaching you can use to coach your guys up. So it wasn't like he's just some quarterback club saying, you know, we had a bunch of bombs on the team. <laughs> um and I agree with you. You know, it's interesting, the Ruggs thing over here, the Alabama fans obviously loved what he said because he said what they thought, right? It's the old, he said the quiet part out loud. Um, he did catch a little criticism for the Ruggs thing because a lot of people, of course, look at that and say, oh, he's blaming it on his friends. And that's not what he said at no, all. No, not at all. I thought what he said about Ruggs yeah. was absolutely perfect. Yep, yep. He And what he said was one of... One of the critical mistakes that Henry Ruggs made was not surrounding himself with the right people. And you can't deny that. He surrounded himself, by all you know reports, he surrounded himself with enablers. And that's how you end up in the situation you're in. And I think that is a great message about Henry Ruggs. Never did Nick Saban say, hey, it's Ruggs' friend's fault. He said one of the mistakes Henry made was not surrounding himself with the right people. The last time you and I talked, we we talked about this whole playoff thing. I thought the 12-team playoff was coming sooner rather than later. That appears to not be the case. You, you obviously have talked about this on your show some, mm -hmm. probably a lot. Um, do you think this latest round is just rhetoric, or do you think, oh, to hell with it, we're done until 2026, and then all bets are off? You know, I go back and forth on that because I do think – so here's – Here's what I think. I think, first of all, the Big Ten, and maybe to a certain extent, the Big 12 and the Pac-12, are concerned. They do not want this to be an ESPN-only event, right? They want Fox to be part of it because they view ESPN and the SEC as too chummy for us to have a playoff that is controlled by ESPN. And, and you look at it from the outside and say, yeah, I see that. Kind um, of. Yeah. I mean – you know, you'd have to ask the question, how much decision-making power does ESPN really have? I mean, do they have that much influence inside the room of where guys are selected? Um, you know, if I'm the Big Ten, maybe I think they do and they don't. I don't know. Um, so I do think there's some issue. There. But, but, you know, if you if you sell the ESPN, hey, you're, you're the rights holder. And it says right here in the contract, you're the rights holder through 2026 for a playoff. Here's our, our idea, ESPN. Um, we're going to go from four to 12 and we'd like for you to still carry the whole thing for this amount more. And ESPN's like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm getting pretty good TV ratings and I'm paying this amount. Okay. Okay. All right. 
well, then how about we're going to go from four to 12 and we're going to invite Fox to the game? And ESPN's like, no, I don't like that one either. <laughs> you know, I, I want to, I, I want to hold everything, but I want to hold it on my terms. So if that's true, if that's the way that played out, Neil, yeah, I think we're, we're probably stuck until the end of this because why would ESPN want to let Fox and CBS and NBC or whoever in the game when they hold all the cards right now? And I think that's the eventual, I think that's the eventual solution to this is I do think it's going to be bid out to multiple networks. And I think there's going to be some sort of NFL like rotation with the networks and the championship, you know, the playoff games and the national championship game. Yeah, I do too. I'd like to see it sooner rather than later. I Uh, agree. uh, You know, the the NFL playoffs this season and, and most seasons are always great. And this season it was just fantastic. It was great entertainment. And oh, you could see oh. how that would be that way on the college level. I mean, the thought of – to me, it makes the regular season more exciting. Uh, the people that – the people to me that I hear go, oh, well, you know, the more teams you put in a playoff, the more you minimize the regular season. I'm like, no, 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 that's not right. I mean, in, in the, old, the old school thought was that, but that's not the case. Now you would have much more m- – many more games in November that are truly meaningful – Beyond just hey, this team's playing for a berth in the Alamo Bowl. Okay, great. I mean, cool. Right, I mean, right. you know, who's no one's really watching the Alamo Bowl. But when 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 you take that away and you cut it back down to four, the part where I think the Big Ten and the ACC and I guess the Pac-12, who I think is just weak. No offense to your friends at Stanford. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, go Cardinal. Um, I just think there's not seeing the forest through the proverbial tree. There, it, it's there. <laughs> They're not. They're the. In, instead of saying, "Hey, in a twelve-team playoff, someone from the Pac-12 is going to be in it. In a twelve-team yeah. playoff, two teams from the Big Ten are going to be in it. In a twelve-team playoff, playoff, someone and sometimes two someones from the ACC are going to be in it. Yeah, there's going to be three, maybe four, and on some years five SEC teams in it. But don't we want to be involved in that playoff? Like, I'll give the Big Twelve credit. Oklahoma and Texas hurt their feelings they broke up with them they left them the whole deal their um their feelings are hurt but they're smart enough to go but wait a minute we get a spot and so this year baylor would have been in the tournament and you know and oklahoma state would have been in it too that's right that's right and so you're even in a loss in the big 12 championship game they still would have been in it and you're so you're much more relevant in a 12-team playoff than you are never getting in. And without Texas and Oklahoma in their league, never might be too big of a word, but it's close to never. You're, yeah. you're very rarely going to get into a four-team tournament. It seems to me you would want the relevance that comes with making the playoffs. And, and, and you know, I was one of those. I'll, I'll admit I was one of those that was concerned about how it minimized the importance of the regular season. And the example I always used was the 2012 Alabama-Texas A&M game. So Alabama goes to LSU in 2012, pulls a win out of you know where. Mm-hmm. The very next week, Johnny Manziel and Texas A&M come to Tuscaloosa and they beat Alabama, who was number one in the country at the time. And every Alabama fan walked out of that stadium knowing we may have just lost the national championship. It was a two-team championship at that time. Well, it ends up Alabama gets the losses they need or gets the loss they need to get back in it, and they beat Notre Dame and win the national championship. And I was like, man, I don't want to lose that in college football. That's what sets it apart from the NFL. But you just got to you've got to broaden your scope. And I'll get and I'll use Ole Miss as an example. I love the Egg Bowl. 
the Egg Bowl this year had no national relevance. Right. If we had a 12-team playoff, it had a ton of national relevance. Everyone would watch it. That's right, because if Ole Miss screws it up, they're out of the playoff and somebody else is back. Yeah. Now, Mississippi State wasn't in the same boat. It wasn't like winner gets in, loser goes home, but it absolutely would have been for Ole Miss. Ole Miss was right on the cut line. Yeah. And if they lose that game, they're out of the playoffs and some other team is in. All of a sudden, the Egg Bowl just goes from, oh, that fun game that I get to watch Thanksgiving night and no telling what happens. There could be a guy, you know, pretend like he's a dog pissing on a hydrant. There could be a fight. Sure. I mean, there could be a million things, right? But all of a sudden, there's a, there's a playoff feel to it. Yeah, and I'm not going to get that every year in the Egg Bowl, but there's going to be games every year I'm going to get that in that I don't normally get. But it's a great example because you'd have games like that all over the country that, right. that otherwise you weren't watching. Um, yeah. You know, we would like we, there was a lot of talk this season after the game that 52 to 51 Ole Miss win over Arkansas. Like, whoa, that was a big game. That felt like a big game. And as the season went on, if there were a playoff scenario, you would have looked back at that game and to to my point about making the regular season more meaningful. You would have looked back and said, whoa, if that one play is different, yeah. if K.J. Jefferson somehow finds a way to get Arkansas into the end zone on that two-point play and Arkansas wins 53-52 to 52, instead of losing 52-51, to 51, well, Arkansas would have ended up 9-3. and three. Ole Miss would have ended up 9-3. and three. Arkansas would have had a win in Oxford, and it would be yeah. Arkansas that would be on the cusp right. of a 12. That's and right. so you'd look back and go, boy, see, the games are big. That was a big mm-hmm. game. And, yeah. and and to me, that's what makes it viable. And then you have the idea, to your point, Ole Miss goes 10-2. and two. You predicted 10-2. and two. They went 10-2. and 10-2 and two for Ole Miss would have been a top eight seed. They wouldn't have gotten a bye, but they would have been seven, eight. They would have had a home playoff game in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And people talk about the attention that Ole Miss got with the LSU game with Eli Manning and then more with the Texas A&M game here this year when game day and Lane Kiffin was the yep. guest. And, yeah, you get all that attention. That that attention is minimal compared to the attention you would get hosting a playoff oh, game against, I think it would have been Oklahoma State, coming to town yep. for that game where everyone in the country is locked in going, yeah, yeah, just give me, give me these games. And I think that yep. grows the sport because people get to see – the campuses, because for all the talk about the bowls and stuff, and the bowls are great, and ESPN loves the bowls, and it fills up December and early January. What makes college football cool is the campuses, and you put a you put games, those four games, five versus twelve and six versus eleven, on and on. You put those games on campuses on one weekend, four games where the whole country's watching. I just think I think it grows the sport even more, and it lets those programs get a level of exposure that money can't buy. Yeah, and, and, and you know, there's the Bulls have this outweighted, um, especially among an older generation, this outweighted influence, right? Sure. And, and I'll say this, you know, Nick Saban, who actually, you know, Nick Saban dodges any question about, you know, the expanded playoff. I don't think he personally cares because I think he knows he's in, no matter what number it is, he's in it. they got a good chance of winning it. Sure. But he has been one that has always championed a nine-game SEC conference schedule. And, you know, that, in theory, makes it more difficult. But he's always wanted that. And he's been, a lot of times, the lone voice in it. That said, he's also always been a guy that wants to protect the bowl games. And I think that's an older generation. Nick Saban's 70 now. And I think those that's people that grew up on the bowl games. 
And I do think a 12-team playoff, because to your point, let's say Ole Miss and Oklahoma State play, and let's say that game's in late December, right? Yeah. Or mid-December. Yeah. You know, the, the loser, they don't go to a bowl game, right? That's the end for them. In all likelihood, I don't care if you turn around and go, hey, the loser the loser can go either. play in the Alamo Bowl or whatever. If the kids want to go play, go play, whatever. Yeah, I don't either because I don't think it makes the Alamo Bowl any more or less meaningful than it already is. If you're right? watching the Camellia Bowl, you're watching the Camellia Bowl. That's right. And uh, hey, listen, those bowls get great ratings. That's of the course. They still exist. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. you're watching the Sun Bowl on New Year's Eve, you're watching the Sun Bowl on New Year's Eve. You don't really care yeah. who's playing. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, I think – I think that's a question that has to be asked by a lot of the older generation is what happens to these bowl games now, you know, because if you take 12 teams out, it's a trickle down effect to the bowl games. Right. So, you know, I I don't know what happens. I don't know. I don't know. I personally don't care (laughs) because I think the playoff is better for college football than the bowl games are. So I do think those are some of the things and the Rose Bowl is always an issue in this because it also has an outweighed influence because of the Pac-12 and primarily the Big Ten's love for it. So I do think you've got to answer those types of questions before we can move on. But to me, those are minor stumbling blocks when you look at the amount of TV money this would bring in that these conferences would split up among themselves. Um, all this, the, the SEC just split up money, and I'm, I appreciate your time. We're getting to the end, I promise. Sure. The, the SEC just split up its money. It's going to grow more money when Texas and Oklahoma come. ESPN, as you mentioned, has gotten chummy with the league, and they're like, hey, as long as we approve, we'll build a bigger pie. When this money disparity gets as big as it's about to get, do you sense living there in Birmingham, probably connected to some SEC stuff, SEC talk, do you get a sense that, yeah, this Texas and Oklahoma is not the last teams to join the the league? I, I, I continue to hear these rumblings that, I don't know if calls are made, but overtures are made like, hey, kind of wondering if we'd qualify and I I, yeah. I I hear that a lot well I, I think it goes hand in hand with what I've always believed and there are some like I'll give you a, an example of a voice that disagrees with what I'm about to say is is Andy Staples and I respect Andy I really sure. like Andy and he's extremely good at what he does and very well connected and he said this will not happen I've always believed this is the road we're headed down is that there is going to be a group that pulls away and it's going to be your power conferences plus Notre Dame, maybe plus a BYU or somebody like that. You know, They're going to pull away and do their own thing. And we're going to have two divisions. It's not to say they won't still play one another, but they won't play one another for their championship. And I think we're headed that way. So if we are headed that way, I don't think it would be outside the realm of possibility that the SEC would grow, that all the conferences, in fact, would grow that there would be this whole, you know, another round of expansion and creating an entirely new system. Um, The reason Andy disagrees with it is he says you wouldn't have anything different than what you already have, is that those conferences already control everything anyway. So why are they going to pull away and do their own thing? I think because they can. See, I (laughs) think it's going to be even more extreme than what you're referencing. I I just, I I have this vision and I've I've run it by some people and they always just kind of look at me funny, but nobody ever goes, no, you're out of your mind where the SEC grows and becomes a super conference mm-hmm. and the Big Ten does the same and everybody else is kind of left in the cold and that and they kind of form a mini NFL. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of it like that. I've always thought of it, Neil, as four super conferences and then maybe a Notre Dame sure. with independence. You know, I don't know. I don't know how they factor into it, but 
I've always thought there would be an odd man out conference wise. And, you know, on the surface now, it appears it would be the Big 12 or the Pac-12 um, that would be the odd man out. But I've always thought that that's the road we are headed towards is four super conferences that pull away and do their own thing. And it is almost like a mini NFL at that point. And they operate, you know, they've got all the autonomy. They do their own national championship. Maybe the group of five does theirs. But that's where I've always felt like we're headed anyway. And if we are headed that way, I think it would almost necessitate the Southeastern Conference grow a little bit bigger. All right, last two things. Alabama and Georgia the last few years have dominated the league. Is there anything that you see? And we're months away. But is there anything you see right now that makes you believe that it's not Alabama, Georgia redux in 2022? Well, I mean, I think if you watch the NFL draft, it's going to be hard to believe it's Georgia because they are going to have so many guys in this draft. But then I look at the rest of the East and say, if not Georgia, who, right? And Heupel did way better than I thought he would year one in Tennessee. Uh, but I don't think he's ready for that yet. Uh, I don't think Napier is ready for that at Florida. Mark Stoops, I'm, you know, I think probably is, is squeezed all the juice he can out of Kentucky right yeah, now. For sure. So I think it's going to be Georgia and East. I will tell you, Everybody in Tuscaloosa was pointing towards this year for mm-hmm. Alabama this coming yeah. season. In a lot of ways, and I know this sounds stupid when you talk about Alabama in this era, but in a lot of ways, I think Alabama kind of exceeded expectations to be in that national championship game. I don't think anybody in Tuscaloosa thought that that was a national championship level team. They were all looking forward to this season. So that's the type of team that I think people think Alabama will have in Tuscaloosa. So long answer to that question, yeah. That's who I think going to be in Atlanta again this year is Alabama and Georgia. Which will lead into the, and my final topic, which is going to lead into the conversation about Nick Saban and if he wins big with Bryce Young and, and, and Anderson, does he walk away into the spotlight, into the limelight and all that stuff. Yeah. We hear that all the time. It's, it's more relevant here in Mississippi this time around because there's so many eyes on Arch Manning who's listing Alabama. He lists Georgia. They're both in, in the mix. Ole Miss is in the mix. Texas is in the mix. Clemson's at least hanging on to the mix, kind of with maybe some fingernails just kind of gripping, hanging on to something. Do you hear anything there about what Arch is going to do? Is there a different level of confidence or lack thereof with Alabama as opposed to maybe a few months ago? Yeah, um, I did think, by the way, since you brought that up, I laughed out loud when I saw the first report that Steve Sarkeesian was considering hiring David Cutcliffe. (laughs) Yeah. As an offensive analyst. I mean, I laughed out loud because I'm like, yeah, that's a heck of a move. Yeah. You got to give Sark credit. You do, on the do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, heck of a look. I mean, I, I respect the heck out of David Cutcliffe. He stands on his own on that job, but everybody in the world knew what's going on there, right? Um, I, I think, you know, look, I think Alabama's as confident in this as, as anyone can be because. I mean, you've followed this way closer than I have. The Mannings have played this pretty close to the best. Very. I, I don't know that anybody knows where they stand in this whole deal. But I do think Alabama probably feels like they stand about as well as anyone because I think the Manning family respects Nick Saban. Sure. <laughs> um, I think they know that even if maybe they're not the biggest, and I'm not saying that they're not Bill O'Brien fans, but I think they look at it and say, it really has not mattered who's been the offensive coordinator there. Those offenses have been prolific since Kiffin, since Alabama said, hey, you know what, here's where the game's headed. Or since Nick Saban said, here's where the game's headed, let me catch up to it. And then you've had Kiffin, who you know, revamped Alabama's offense. You had Sarkeesian, who in a lot of ways took it to the next level. I just skipped over Michael Oxley there. But Michael Oxley, actually, you know, they were in a national championship game, didn't do a really bad job. Brian Dable 
had to coach with Jalen Hurts, Nick Saban was very hesitant to go, you know, to Tua Tonga Valoa. Had he done that earlier, it's probably a different story with Brian Dable, who's now an NFL head coach, Michael Oxley, head coach in Maryland. I mean, you just look at him, he's like, whoever's had the job has been successful. So even if I'm not the biggest Bill O'Brien fan, everybody's successful in that position or he'll hire somebody that is. So I think Alabama just feels like track record gives them, you know, a pretty good spot for Arch Manning. Do they know any better than anybody else knows if they're going to get him? I, I sincerely doubt it because of the way the Mannings have played this. And I look, you know, I kind of applaud. I don't know. You may disagree. I don't feel like the Mannings have played this like a, you know, we're going to be the center of attention. So we're going to keep this kind of thing quiet. Quite the opposite. Like a, uh-huh. I yeah, think it's I think the opposite. Like a, lot of, like a lot of dads look at this and would have played it like, you know, I just want my son to try to be as normal as a kid with that last name could be. And I personally feel like that's the way they've played this. Yeah, you go look at a bunch of schools and you narrow it down and you try to get comfortable and you're sending – look, I know he's a football player and I know he has a name and it's a different thing, but you're still sending your kid off to college. Yep. Yep. There's, they're, they're, even they're going to have the moment where you drop your kid off and you leave. And that yep. – even for – a Manning, that's a powerful thing. I mean, it's you know, you, yeah. it's emotional, and and I know he's a football player. I get it, and 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 I know if it's Ole Miss that they have a house up here and they're going to see him regularly and all of that stuff. But you're still sending your kid off to college, and you want your kid to be happy. You want your kid to go walk into the door the first day, going, "This is the place for me." That's right, and you know because of the name that it's never going to be normal for him. No, I mean, right. and 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 that's and I'm not listen. Nobody's going to cry any tears for Arch Manning. The sure, kid, you know, he's going to have every advantage. But right? he doesn't get the he doesn't get the advantage of a normal college kid where you hey That's I right. kind of start from scratch and no one really yeah. knows who I am and I, I get a, a fresh slate here to work with. No, every every eye is on him, whether it's Ole Miss or Alabama or Georgia or Texas, whatever wherever he goes, everyone goes hey there's Arch Manning and you're watching him and he knows that. Yeah, I mean. In a lot of ways, he would be one of the most celebrated recruits I can remember Alabama getting in a very, very long time. And which that's says, Alabama which says a lot, right, right. I know. I mean, I, the fans around here, look, you know how Alabama fans work. If they don't get him, they'll whoever the guy they get, they'll say, oh, we didn't get Arch Manning, but we got sure. whoever. Sure. You know, um, well, at this they point, they've earned him. the right to say that because they – Sure, yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, if they do get him though, I'm telling you, man, it'll be it'll be a big deal here. And like you said, that says a lot because this is a program that has recruited in the top one, two, or three for more than a decade now. So to get a guy where you would say, Hey, that's a big deal, that just doesn't really happen here much anymore. You mentioned too, uh, has your wife gotten over the Dolphins hire? She stopped making fun of the Dolphins' new coach, or you it, things? Is there some hope now, or where where do you I stand mean, on McDaniel? She only knows. She only knows. <laughs> she only has hope if I have hope, right? But she doesn't know anything. She just thinks it's hilarious. She's like, now I'll, I'll she two two things. Number one, uh, her first reaction that when I showed her this guy, she was like, "Is this real? She this is like a Saturday Night Live skit." Yeah. The best, the best quote though was again my co-host Lance Taylor said Mike McDaniel when he was behind the podium he was he was doing his while we were doing our live show he was doing his first press conference and like Lance said he looks like the guy that should be introducing the new head coach <laughs> which is so true that is spot on I'm excited about him I mean it's a different it's a different deal man I mean this yeah. guy he approaches it differently but the truth is. You know, the Dolphins have hired the football guy, the old school hard-nosed football guy, time and time and time again. 
And whether it has been Adam Gase or Joe Philbin or Brian Flores or Dave Lundstedt or I could keep the list going, none of them will work. You know, Tony Sperano, none of them will work. So yeah, what, try you know, something new. Sure. Yeah, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So yeah. try something new. Yeah. Hey, I kept you for a long time. I really appreciate it. Great catching up with you. I know our people appreciate it too and hope you have a great weekend. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Always fun, Neil. Thanks for the time. Enjoyed it. That was Ryan Brown. Appreciate his time as always. Thanks to all of you for making us a part of your week. Thanks to Brian Scott Rippey, Ryan Brown for joining us on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Here on Handraise Guys, presented by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. Don't forget, same great products, same great people, same services, just different names. You see the numbers on the screen, 662-801-1777 for Comer, 662-429-4429 for Southern. We'll make this the uh, Friday Oxford Exxon podcast, and we'll be back with you on Monday with another edition of the Oxford Exxon podcast. We'll talk about Ole Miss Texas A&M basketball, Ole Miss VCU baseball, and much more here on the show. Again, uh, for Chase, I'm Neil. Enjoy your weekend. Talk to you soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.